the book of Micah. We are journeying through the Minor Prophets. Uh, we did our opening session last week. Micah, his name means who is like Jehovah. What a great name to have. It's a kind of that, almost a taunt or a challenge to uh, others who are involved in pagan idolatry and so on. Uh, you know, who is like our God? No one's like our God. Uh, God is unique. Micah was from this small town, uh, Morisheth Garth is how it's referred to. It was obviously near Garth, uh, Garth being one of the principal cities of the Philistines, uh, Ashdod, another one, and so on. Uh, and you can see it was not that far, just southwest of Jerusalem, and uh, Bethlehem's down there as well, which will be mentioned, obviously, as we go through this study in a while. When we look at the kings of Judah, uh, we see that it was actually during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah that Micah speaks. Uh, and leading up to the time that the northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 BC. So that's the kind of time frame we're looking at. He was contemporaries with Amos and with Hosea, uh, Isaiah as well. All of these were roughly at the same time speaking. And we know from the account we have in Jeremiah that his message was heeded. Unlike many of the prophets who they spoke and nobody listened, or seemingly nobody listened, um, Micah was different. Uh, Micah preached in the countryside, whilst Isaiah was preaching in Jerusalem in the court. And Micah prophesied concerning Samaria, which was obviously the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem being the capital of Judah, but his real burden was for Judah, which is really where he was from, that area. Now, the times, as we said last week, were very difficult. There was a lot of oppression going on, uh, both within the walls of the cities and the towns, uh, and also from enemies, particularly the Assyrian threat from without. And no kind of class of people were free from the influences, the corrupting influences that were, were going around. You know, the princes, the priests, and the people alike were all caught up in all of these things. And so Micah makes them feel very uncomfortable by his preaching. Uh, he shows that for every cruel act that they were committing to their fellow uh, people in the land, uh, it was really an insult to God, the God that created these individuals, that loved them. And so Micah makes it clear that God is offended uh, by the conduct of the people and the rulers, and that he's going to bring judgment if there's not a change. Uh, and again, in spite of the state of things, the people carried on in their religious practices. They were still we might say, doing church. They were going to church every week, or at least for them. You know, they were going on the Sabbath days, and they were offering their sacrifices and so on. And Micah just shows the, the futility and the hypocrisy. You know, God is not looking for sacrifice. He's looking for hearts that are committed to him. Of course, Israel didn't heed the warning, and they were conquered by the Assyrians and carried away in 722 BC, as we said a moment ago. Judah did listen, and they were spared 150 years. Jeremiah records this in Jeremiah 26, uh, verse 18. And it's speaking of a time when the people uh, were trying to spare Jeremiah's life. The leaders wanted to kill Jeremiah because of what he was saying. And they say this, Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? So the challenge is, you know, that didn't happen to Micah. People listened to him, so don't do it to Jeremiah. It says, did he not, speaking of Hezekiah, did he not fear the Lord, notice, and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him, relented of the evil which he had pronounced against them. 
Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. Now that's in the time of Jeremiah, but it's interesting because it gives us this glimpse into the success, and we've used this, said this many times, we shouldn't really talk about success as Christians. It's about obedience. Jeremiah wasn't successful, but he was obedient. Micah, though, certainly people did heed the message that he brought. And people did respond, particularly King Hezekiah. And as a result of that, God does delay the judgment he brings. Now, I'm not going to go through this in detail again. We looked at this last week. But the book is broken down really into these three natural sections that begin with this kind of here uh, statement. First section is hear all you people. And we looked at that last time, the first two chapters. The second section is this, here I pray you, O heads of Jacob. So we're going to see this section very much now focusing on the leadership of the nation. And then the last section, hear ye now what the Lord saith. And we'll see God's verdict uh, on their current situation. So that second section is where we are at the moment. And it's broken down. The first four verses is really dressed to the judges, uh, the corruption that was going on in the courts. In the second section, verses 5 through 8, we see that the prophets were market-driven, as it were. They, they responded to what people wanted to hear. They were looking for what was popular before they gave their prophecies. That's not how it works. In the last three verses of this chapter, uh, we see that the politicians really were for hire. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, so let's jump in, verse 1 of chapter 3. And I said, here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? Straight away, Mike comes in there with a challenge for them. You know, that you're the ones that should know what is right and what is wrong. You should be able to judge properly. Chuck Misler made this comment. He said, that, was it not their special duty and responsibility to know justice? They were not unknowledgeable. They were deliberately perverting justice. Verse 2 carries on, who hates the good and love the evil. Now, you'll notice this sounds very much like Isaiah. Um, Isaiah uses these kind of expressions, and though contemporaries, uh, they seem to borrow a lot of ideas from each other. If you look in a number of commentaries, you'll find that there's lots of passages that are parallel, or one idea has been taken by Isaiah from Micah and the reverse and so on. But here it says, you know, you hate the good and love the evil. Once again, doesn't that sound just a little bit like the world that we're living in today? But, you know, that itself speaks of their attitudes that have become habitual. They, they got to the stage that things that were good were treated with disdain. The things that were wrong, they embraced. Again, very much like the world in which we live. Who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pardon, as flesh within the cauldron. Now, it's not suggesting cannibalism was taking place, but it's saying that this is effectively the mindset of the people. They were looking, they would take whatever they could from the poor and the needy. They would look to feather their own nests, and they didn't care about the impact that it would have on other people. They were addicted, if you like, to their injustice. And you know, like cannibals, they were feeding on those whom it was their responsibility to defend. And they were long overdue, this moral wake-up call. Verse 4, we go on. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Interesting statement. 
God's saying, or God's word recording here, that God hide his face from these people. How revealing, isn't it, that people cry out to God in a time of trouble. Because that's, that's what it's saying here. They shall cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear. There's going to come a point that because of the judgment that's coming upon them, they will cry out and immediately cry to God. But it's too late. God says, no, I'm not going to hear. You see, deep down, we have our conscience within us that Scripture says bears witness. Yet God is not going to be found by unrepentant hearts. In the book of Romans, we read this, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. In other words, although the law specifically was given to Israel, we all instinctively know that there's things that are, are not right. You know that it's wrong to lie, to steal, to murder, and adultery, and so on. You know, instinctively, humans know those things are not right. We have that law within us, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. There's that expression. And their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. You see, Paul says here, as he writes to the Romans, that people know what's right or wrong. And they might play the game and pretend that everything, that they, they love the evil, but they know those things are not true and they're not right. Back in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says people are not going to get to Judgment Day and the whole idea of well, what about the man on the island that never got to hear the gospel? Well, don't worry about the man on the island. God will deal with that. Worry about your own heart, your own life. People use those excuses to try and dodge the bullet, as it were. But, you know, we all are responsible. And one day, everybody will stand before God, one way or another, believe the stand at the judgment seat of Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. We're going to stand at the great white throne judgment and everything you've ever done and thought and said will be weighed and you'll be judged accordingly. But nobody's going to stand there and say, well, I didn't know that wasn't right. People know, and God says here very clearly, that the invisible things of God's God attributes, it's all clearly seen. People are without excuse. Nobody's going to get there and say, well, I really didn't know. Psalm 66, 18 in a sense, says a very similar thing to what was just read in Micah. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, it's not that God can't. It's not that God is not able or capable. It's simply that God chooses not to hear. And the reason is very simple. Because God is so holy that iniquity cannot be granted access, access to his presence. You, you see it when you look in Exodus and Leviticus and so on, and the laws and things that were given, and how they were to approach the tabernacle, how they were to be in God's presence. You know, God was very specific because they were coming into God's presence. There had to be propriety. There had to be the right order. Things had to be done in the right way that God prescribed. And if we're going to come before God, we can't come before him with sin in our hearts because God will not allow that which is impure into his presence. We, of course, are told a great um, couple of verses in 1 John. Chapter 1, I think verse 9 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have access, but we have to have clean hearts. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Don't come to the Lord if you've got problems with other people, if you've got grudges going on, and things that you're not prepared to forgive. Deal with those things. Because if you're harboring sin, as we just saw in Psalm 66, 18, the Lord will not hear. Jeremiah 11, verse 14, says something very similar again. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear that in the time they cry unto me for their trouble. You know, there's a number of occasions in Scripture we find these kind of verses where God says, if you are bearing iniquity, if you're dealing with iniquity and sin in your life, you cannot come into his presence. Do you know there's another occasion we find in the New Testament? We read about it in Matthew 27. Pick up verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just the only time Jesus does not call God Father. Why? Because he's bearing our sin. He can't know, he can no longer have that relationship that he'd known up until that point. Because now he was on the cross in our place, bearing our sin. And the Father, as it were, would turn his face away. And Jesus cries out on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? Of course, knowing the reason, but it's the same principle that we've seen. If you bear iniquity, you cannot come into the presence of the Lord. And Jesus, for you and I, was willing to experience that. And This is the real horror of hell. People joke and talk about hell and things, but the real horror of hell is that we will be cut off, or people that will be there will be cut off from the presence of God. And Jesus did that for us, for those that are willing to put their faith and trust in him. The second section now, we look at the prophets and so on. It says, thus says the Lord, verse 5, concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth, that cry, peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. And maybe a bit of a uh, difficult verse to understand, and we try and break it down. So these self-appointed prophets fed the people with lies, okay? The bite with their teeth. It's the, you know, they're feeding lies, a false hope to secure their own position. You know, it was a sure way that they were able to carry on in this nice little job they had of being a prophet of the Lord if they said things that people liked. Prophesying what the people wanted here. Of course, Paul speaks about that in his letters to Timothy. But in contrast, the true prophets did not feed the people's itching ears. Okay, and as I said, he that put it not into their mouths, in other words, the, the true prophets that were speaking the words of the Lord are not just giving them what they wanted to hear, not the food they wanted. Even they prepare war against it. In other words, they were hostile towards the true prophets. Consequently, the true prophets were hated by the people, while the false prophets were embraced. Verse 6, Therefore night shall be unto you, that you shall not have a vision. And it shall be dark unto you, that you shall not divine. And the sun shall not go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, the diviners confounded. Yea, and they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. 
There's a, a fourfold judgment in this that's really pronounced against them. Firstly, God is saying that there's going to be no spiritual light or divine revelation for them. That they're going to lose even the power that they claim to have. And that time is going to run out on them and the darkness is going to come, speaking of the judgment that was coming. And that they will be exposed, ashamed, and abandoned. Verse 8 goes on and says, But truly I am full of power. This is Micah speaking now. This is in contrast to these false prophets. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. See, that, that's the key, isn't it? It's what we do has to be in and of the Lord. You know, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor is in vain. And Micah is saying that that which he was doing wasn't of his own initiative, but it was of the Lord. I'm truly full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So Micah, again, stating his position, empowered and appointed by the Spirit of God. See, that's the thing. The world makes a lot about ordination. I always find it curious that it's, you know, people talk about, are you ordained? And what they mean is, has another man or woman granted you some sort of position? Well, I'm not interested. I want to know what God thinks. You know, ordination comes from God. It's God that ordains, not a, a man or a woman. No, Michael was ordained, appointed by the Spirit of God, called to pronounce divine judgment. And strengthened by God. And given this divine mission which he was on. Last few verses, chapter 3, go on and say, Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Chuck Nisler makes this comment. He says, by their hatred of justice and perversion of all that's right, the heads and rulers were building Zion with, exhortation, with sorry, extortion and robbery at the cost of human misery, woe, and murder. Wealth gained from the rightful owners was used to entrench the selfish and wicked interests of the leaders. The heads therefore judge for reward and the priests therefore teach for hire. And the prophets thereof divine for money, yet they will lean upon the Lord and say, It's not the Lord among us. None evil can come upon us. See, they were, they had this false confidence. They were, you know, in Jerusalem. And they were thinking, well, we're safe. This is the city that God has chosen to put his name there. This was the city of the great kings, David and Solomon and so on. God's not going to do anything to us here. Micah says, speaking against their false confidence, Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Interesting, isn't it? The love of money is the root of all evil. And again, there's the opening verse there. says, the heads, therefore, judge for reward. If you've got the right price, you get the verdict you want. Commentator quips, they had the best leadership money could buy. It's not really the right thing. Jeremiah speaks to this situation. The confidence, the false confidence that people were placing in the fact that they lived in Jerusalem. Oh, that Judah was, was kind of God's territory, this land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they just had this mindset that we're safe. We can do whatever we want, but we're safe. Jeremiah hits that on the head. He says, Trust you not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord of these. It goes on in verse 8 of Jeremiah 7 and says, 
Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, Oh, we are delivered to do all these abominations. You know, we don't have a choice, kind of thing. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. A very similar situation, of course, Jeremiah, sometime on from uh, Micah, 100 years onwards. Let's jump into chapter 4, and we read this. But in the last days, and I should give our attention, because that's where we are right now. And this is an incredible chapter. You know, there's a lot in Micah that, or there's some parts of Micah that you'll be familiar with, and we'll touch on in a moment. But what really just fascinates me is the clarity with which Micah speaks into our time and what's about to take place. And he says this. So putting all the judgment aside for a second, he now says, but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We could spend probably a couple of weeks taking this apart. I don't intend to do that. I encourage you to look into this and study yourself. There is so much here. Let's just go through some of the things. Firstly, in the last days, this is really speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. This is when these things will take place. And we are right on the, 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 the cusp of that now. These things are about to happen. It speaks of the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's the fourth temple. We had the original temple that was built by Solomon. David laid all the, the, the plans down for it. And Solomon built the temple. That was then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then the temple was then rebuilt in the days of Haggai and so on. That's 518 BC and, uh, and onwards. And then, of course, that temple was then destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And we know that there will be another temple built because the Bible speaks of Antichrist who's going to come will place his image in a temple, in the temple in Jerusalem. It's not there at the moment, so the temple has to be rebuilt. That will be the third temple. The scripture is very clear. When the Messiah returns, he will build his house. He will build a temple. So there's going to be a fourth temple, and that's what it's speaking of here. It's going to be established in the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills, there is going to be a major change in the world's geography. Let me just read to you very briefly, if I may, from Psalm 48. I'm sure it's a, a passage of scripture that you'll know very well. <clears throat> Psalm 48 says this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Again, it's not speaking of David or Solomon, it's speaking of the Messiah, the great king. And the whole earth is going to rejoice. But verse 2 says, beautiful for situation. If you look at the, the, the Hebrew, and there's various tools online you can do this, you'll find it's actually not beautiful for situation. It's beautiful for elevation. That's what it's specifically referring to. The height. Jerusalem is going to be above the mountains. Now, that should grab your attention because it's not at the moment. We're told that all people are going to flow unto it. Right, let me just give you a really quick kind of panorama of what we've got ahead of us, what's coming. 
We are kind of like there at the moment, the church age, coming toward the end of the church age. The book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, lays these details out for us if you want to dig into it more. We know that ahead of us there will be a period of at least seven, well, there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation. It's 84 months or uh, 25,200 days, specifically we're told in Scripture. At the beginning of that, to mark the start of that, there's going to be a seven-year covenant or an agreement or a ratifying of an agreement with Israel by this individual who goes by about 33 titles in the Old Testament and about 14 in the New. We typically refer to as Antichrist. The church will be raptured before that happens, by the way. Midway through that seven-year period, Antichrist is going to turn on the Jews after allowing them to start their sacrifices again and so on, in the midway through, he's going to stop all of those things. And Israel will be forced to flee. That's what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and so on. Antichrist is going to put his own image into this newly rebuilt third temple that's coming. We've seen forerunners of that. In the book of Daniel, it speaks of prophetically what was coming and there was an individual, Antiochus Epiphanes, in about 167 BC. It was like a dress rehearsal. It's a fascinating piece of history. Jesus himself really gives that title, the beginning of sorrows, which is what we now kind of use as that expression for that first three and a half years. Things are bad, but not that bad. God's pouring out wrath and judgment, but in measure. And then the last part is a great tribulation. God specifically says that those days are numbered. It says, unless those days be shortened, it means God has put a defined number on it, because if it were to carry on, no flesh would survive, we're told. And God will pour out his wrath upon the earth, on this Christ-rejecting world, because of their sin. At the end of that time, we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One of the most common themes through the entire Bible. For every prophecy of his first coming, there's eight prophecies of the second coming of Jesus. And then we have a 75-day interval. Now, Daniel chapter 12 gives us some of this information. So at the end of the tribulation, we've got a period of 30 days, first of all, after which the abomination of desolation will be removed. And then there's a further 45 days, which makes this total of 75-day interval, and then begins the millennial reign of Christ on earth for a 1,000 years. Jesus will fulfill all those promises and prophecies and so on. You remember when Gabriel speaks to Mary? Speaks of the fact that the one she's bearing, the, one, the child she's going to give birth to, will sit on the throne of David. That's never happened. Gabriel didn't get it wrong. It's yet to take place. If you remember the disciples after the resurrection said to the, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't say, oh guys, you got it all wrong. He says, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But effectively, he says, it's going to happen, but there's something for you to be doing in the meantime. And we're now in this church age and so on. And this will be on those notes on, online if you want to look at after. There's a, there's a number of things specifically that take place during that 75-day interval and so on. But that then leads on to this millennial reign. Jesus, as I said before, that at the time of the second coming, will come back to this earth with his bride, with the church. And that completes what Scripture refers to as the first resurrection. The tribulation saints will re- receive their new bodies, those that got saved during the tribulation time. But we're told that the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Satan will be bound for this period of a thousand years. And Jesus will rule 
from David's throne in Jerusalem, which will, as we've just seen, be the highest point elevation-wise on earth. At the end of that time, Satan will be released for a short time, and then finally God will judge, and then we go into the new heavens and the new earth. But look at this again, because it says, the mountain of the Lord's house it shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. Now, in the book of Acts, we read an interesting statement. It's speaking of the time that Jesus will will come back, but it's saying heaven is going to receive Jesus first, and if you see verse 21 at the bottom there, whom heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Well, which holy prophets? The ones that we're looking at right now, people like Micah and so on, that speak of the way that God was going to restore things. So what's it going to be restored to? Well, it's going to be restored to as it was in the beginning. That's how, there's no other way of understanding that. How was it in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas and God saw that it was good. Notice that there are no islands. We have land, we have sea. That was how the original earth was. Things changed dramatically at the time of the flood, but initially that's how it was. And why this is interesting, when you piece all these things together, we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 16, and we pick up verse 18, and there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake is so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came up in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then look at this. And every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. There is going to be a huge change to the world as we know it. And everything is going to change. The mountains that rose up and the valley sank at the time of the flood. Psalm 104, I believe it is, speaks of that. That's all going to change. And suddenly we're going to end up with Jerusalem being thrust up and forced up to be this high elevation point. In the earth. If every island flees away, then there has to be just one landmass again. It seems that God is intentionally going to bring the world back to as it was. Now, it's fascinating. There was a, a number of years ago, a scientist published this. This was from the Creation Science Movement. And he looked at the way the world was. And there's all sorts of theories of Pangea, how the continents have shifted, and people try and fit them together and so on. He made this comment. He said, the continents and islands, which he's put together at sea level, made a very imperfect fit. If moved to the right positions, joined together almost perfectly below the present sea level. And that's the shape they form. It's like a flower with Jerusalem right at the center of it. And it seems to be that this is what God is going to do. The world will change dramatically during the events of the tribulation. Getting it ready for Jerusalem to be that central point for the whole earth. And everybody will want to go up to Jerusalem to see this king. And again, just read this. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord, house of the Lord, shall be established in the top of the mountains. This isn't some allegory or picture language. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come. Now I've 
We could look at other comments that some of the other minor prophets make, but because we're going through this, we'll wait till we get there. But they speak about these things as well. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. Imagine what it's going to be like. The Lord himself will be teaching. What Bible study is there going to be? For the Lord shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. Now, that's a statement that should resonate because it's exactly what we read in Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats judgment. The, the Lord is going to, when he returns and sets up his kingdom, he's going to bring the nations of the world together and they'll be judged depending on how they've treated his brethren, the Jews. He shall judge many uh, among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is what it's going to be like when we have a just king ruling. The money that is spent on arms today, that's all going to stop. The money instead is going to be put into agriculture, into farming. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. I thought this was quite interesting because it's easy to miss the significance of this. Not many of us have got vines in our gardens or fig trees in our gardens. But if you were a Jew, you would have. If you lived in Israel, you would have. This is a promise not to us, but to Israel, that there's going to come a time that the turmoil they've experienced will be over. And yes, it was as a result of their sin that God brought judgment upon them. But it says, but they, this is speaking of Israel, shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. God was speaking this morning of Amnesty International's report and so on. You know, there is so much anti-Semitism in the world. Being a Jew is not comfortable in the modern world in which we live. But it says here that none shall make them afraid. Yet Zechariah, as he's prophesying, when, he's, when he can speak again after John the Baptist is born, he speaks of the Messiah, that the Messiah will deliver them from all their enemies round about. Notice, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all the people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah, who is like Jehovah? You see it in that sentence. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Speaking, of course, of Israel. The Israel are like... The, Constantly given this kind of female identity through scripture. Very much being seen as being kind of the wife of Jehovah. And because of Israel's iniquity, they were driven out. They were cast around the world. And it's as if they're limping. And the Lord is saying, I'll, I'll assemble her that halted. I'll gather her that is driven out. You know, we read, I believe it's in Luke's gospel. Jesus uh, said that he wanted to gather Israel as a hen gathers its chicks. But at that time, Israel was not ready. And I will make her that halteth a remnant, and her that was cast off, or was cast far off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. This is the promise to Israel. And it's never been rescinded. The church never replaced these things. 
The Lord has a distinct plan and purpose for the church and a distinct plan and purpose for Israel. And ultimately, in the New Jerusalem, we will be brought together in one. And that's why in the New Jerusalem, you have the 12 foundation stones. And you have the 12 gates. 12 for the apostles, 12 for the tribes of Israel, all brought together in one in Christ. God's plan from before the foundation of the world. But where and when? What a promise. Micah speaking this to his people. You know, they were listening to these things. What a great message of hope. It wasn't that kind of, oh, don't worry, judgment's not coming, there's going to be peace. It wasn't that message that the false prophets were bringing. It was a, yes, you will be afflicted. Yes, you'll end up limping. But this is going to be the end of it. Where and when? Well, Micah goes on to tell us something really significant now. And he says, and thou, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. What a statement this is, but what is it referring to? What is the tower of the flock? The Hebrew phrase, tower of the flock here, is actually Migdal Eda. It refers to a particular tower that was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. And it's saying to this place, the first, the dominion, the first kingdom will come. And the name literally means the watchtower of the flock. And there's several of the towers like this that are recorded in scripture. There's some scriptural references there in Judges and Kings and Nehemiah and so on. Rabbi Short makes this comment. He says, this Migdalida was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. So if you were traveling down from Jerusalem, you would come right past this place. Migdal Eda is mentioned in the Jewish Targums. It's translated the anointed one of the flock of Israel. We actually find it occur in Genesis 35. I'm told that Rachel died, was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is, the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Edah. So this is the same place as mentioned here back in Genesis. That's typically what this tower would have looked like. Location-wise, it's on the town, the blue mark there, it's on the town on the way into Bethlehem. So if you're traveling down from Jerusalem, you come right past this place. Prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, the early Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, that of all the places in Israel, it would be Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock in Bethlehem, where the arrival of the Messiah will be declared first. It was, as I said, built as a watchtower to be used by shepherds, typically for protection from robbers and wild animals. But significantly, the sheep that were cared for here were without blemish. Why so? Well, that obviously makes them valuable, but they were specifically destined to be offered as a sacrifice in Jerusalem. That, that's the importance of the fields of sheep around Bethlehem. They weren't just any old sheep. They were for destined for sacrifice in the temple, which meant they had to be without blemish. And the responsibility to look after these fell to shepherds who were specifically chosen Levites. One of the primary roles of the shepherds was to inspect the sheep to make sure that they were without blemish. Obviously, any sacrifice that was offered had to be without blemish. 
because it had to be ultimately looking forward to what was fulfilled in Christ. During the lambing season, the sheep were brought to the tower from the fields, and the lower levels of this tower functioned as a birthing room for the sacrificial lambs. And so being themselves under special rabbinical care, the shepherds would strictly maintain a ceremonially clean birthing place. Once birthed, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in a hewn depression of limestone rock known as the manger. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And then they would wrap the newborn lambs in swaddling clothes, which prevented them from thrashing around and harming themselves until they could calm down, so they could be inspected for the quality of being without spot or blemish. Incidentally, those swaddling cloths that these newborn rams, lambs were wrapped in were actually made from the discarded, from the old garments of priestly robes. Of course, it was to these shepherds that looked after these sheep at this tower, Migdalida. It was to these shepherds that angels came announcing the birth of the Messiah, the first dominion, the first coming of Christ. Of course, unless you were a shepherd, the directions that the angels gave were a little bit ambiguous. To you and I, it wouldn't be very helpful because you could have spent all night searching around Bethlehem because if you look at the information... Not particularly helpful. This shall be a sign, notice, is what they were told. Okay, so in something that they're about to be told, there was something that would be significant to them. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, actually, to be more precise, you shall find a babe lying in the manger. Okay, the Greek is very emphatic in the, the language it's using. You find a babe lying in the manger. Now, to anybody else, that wouldn't mean anything. But to these shepherds who knew exactly what the manger was and where the manger was, this would make a lot of sense. And the fact that this babe would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, well, that's a sign for them. They would totally understand this. By the way, there's no mention of a stable anywhere. See, the shepherds were fearful and afraid to start with. You know the account. I know that I'm a little bit amused by this. But when they finished this, this event, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, why would just seeing a baby in a stable next to an inn cause so much overwhelming, overwhelming joy? Well, because they didn't go to a stable next to an inn. There may not have even been an inn and an innkeeper. We've covered this in our Christmas studies, which are online if you want to dig into it more. But you know, tradition has invented Hotel Bethlehem and an innkeeper who was apparently benevolent enough to allow Mary and Joseph to take shelter in his stable alongside Oxen and Cattle. It was a lovely story, and it's on all our Christmas cards, and our Christmas carols are full of these things, and yet it's not found anywhere in the Bible. And the supposed innkeeper is never mentioned, nor is the stable. Of course, there was no need for the angels to give the shepherds directions to the birthplace, because they already knew it. These were the men who raised sacrificial lambs, that were sacrificed in the temple, that were birthed, laid in a manger, and wrapped in swaddling bands, amygdalida. So when this angelic announcement came, they knew exactly where to go. Again, thou, tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. They'll also, no doubt, be aware of the prophecy from Micah that the Messiah would make his appearance to Israel at their tower. The very verse we've just looked at. 
Anutsu indicates the sign of the manger. It can only mean the manger found at the base of the Tower of the Flock, as is in the original Greek wording in Luke 2, verse 7, 12, and 16, and so on. And you can't explain the meaning or the direction of the sign that they were given or their response unless you have the right manger, the right shepherds, and again, that proper Hebraic perspective of this. Again, when there was no room for them in the guest chamber. And by the way, that's actually what the word is. It's translated that way elsewhere in Scripture. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they were not welcome because Mary was about to give birth. That would be something that would defile any house that she was in. Joseph had to find shelter and a place for Mary to give birth. They literally just walked past this place on the way into town. Prophetically, Migdal Eda, again, is the exact place in Bethlehem for Christ to be born. God was faithful in assuring Israel that he would fulfill his promise to them of the coming kingdom. Warren Wisby makes this comment. He says, Micah prophesied that as surely as the Babylonians would soon carry away Judah in the north, so the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And here Micah pledges that as surely as Babylon would carry away Israel into captivity, so the Messiah would arrive at the Tower of the Flock. And of course, Micah goes on with the prophecy in chapter 5. Let's just carry on there. Verse 9 of chapter 4. Now, why dost thou cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. So here's this prophecy now that Mike has given, that they're going to be taken out of their land like a woman that's in travail, about to give birth. And thou shalt there be delivered. You're going to be there for some time. And there the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. So judgment, but there's hope in this. Again, this makes sense in light of this prophecy we've just seen. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thy horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And I shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their grain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. It's speaking of the position that Israel will have. Bear with me, there's only 15 verses, and there are only quick ones to go through. And this brings us to the end of this section. Now gather thyself in troops. Now this really should fit into the end of the last chapter. O daughter of troops, he has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. That is not a reference to the Messiah. Okay? You may think it is, but in context, it seems to be speaking of Zedekiah, who was taken away by Babylon, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. So really, this chapter then starts with this declaration. After all that we've just seen, building on what we've just seen, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We know the scripture. We speak of it every year. And of course it comes from the account in Matthew when the Magi arrive at Jerusalem and all Jerusalem is troubled and shaken by these things. And so they search and they find, where will this king be born? The rightful king of the Jews. Of course, it's going to be at Bethlehem. And we have that quote there in verse 6, directly from Micah that we've just seen. 
Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth has brought forth. In other words, God is going to allow Israel to be given up to the Babylonians and to the succeeding nations, because obviously then Persia took over, and then Greece, and then Rome, and so on, until the time that Christ the Messiah is born. Okay, until the time that she which travaileth has brought forth. But now, notice this. <coughs> Revelation 12 summarizes this, by the way. But notice what we have. There's a, a, a break here. Because then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. That hasn't happened. We haven't had the the rest of the the Jews that were dispersed all brought back into the land. There's a gap here. A gap that's lasted 2,000 years. It is what some people refer to as a dispensational gap. And it covers the church age. It's as if God's clock for Israel is put on hold. Because verse 3 speaks of them going to Babylon, the judgment, until the time that Israel brings forth. There's this child. Revelation 12 speaks about this man-child that Israel was to bring forth. And then we just jump forward, kind of almost skipping the church age in the narrative here, and then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now, what's fascinating is there are 24 of these gaps in the Bible. 24 passages that go from the time of Israel's judgment and captivity and so on, from the time of Christ, and they, they kind of omit the church age, and then they carry on, as if from there. And it's fascinating. And what's even more interesting is the number of times it occurs. There's, there's, let me just give you one quick example. Isaiah um, speaks of, unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's, that happened Bethlehem. But then it jumps forward, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's not happened yet. You see, so it just goes from the, the first coming of Christ amidst the church age and then concludes with the, the follow-up, what's going to happen after Jesus returns. Now, it's interesting because all of these gaps do the same thing. They omit the church age in which we're in now. Why is it interesting? Well, because in the book of Revelation, you find the church depicted as 24 elders in chapters 4 and 5. David arranged the priesthood of Israel into 24 courses, representative of the whole. And that 24 seems to have this church connection to it. It's fascinating. Maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think so. And he shall stand in his feet in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. Again, it describes Israel in the millennial kingdom. And this man shall be the peace. Seems to be speaking of the Messiah. But then he jumps on and says, and I think we're still looking prophetically, although there's a a nearer application with the Assyrians and what happened. When the Assyrians shall come into our land, and Assyrian is a title for Antichrist, and when he shall tread in our places, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds. Now there's different commentators that suggest it could be the Maccabees and others. Don't know. Nobody's really clear. Nobody's sure what these are. And eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Now that is exactly what the Messiah will do when he comes back. He will put an end to Antichrist's rule. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord and the showers upon the grass that tarries not for man nor waits for the sons of man. God's just going to pour blessing. 
And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flock, flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. One hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off witchcrafts out of thy hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers, putting an end to all of these idolatrous practices. You know, all the, the witchcraft and pharmacia it has its links to sorcery and so on, but it's also the idea of pharmacia where we get pharmacy from, and it has this implication of drugs and drug use and so on. But all of those things are going to be put, to, put aside when the Lord returns. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and the standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. That's what everybody does right now. Throughout this world, everybody is just intent on worshipping the work of their own hands. That's why when the Lord works in our lives, sometimes he brings us down to nothing so that he gets the glory. So that whatever happens, we won't turn around and say, well, I did this or I did that. No, the Lord did it. God is going to bring an end to any boasting of the flesh. And I will pluck up thy groves, the places they'd worshipped out of the midst of thee, so I will destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance in my anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. And all those things that are coming, the time of tribulation, and then when Jesus returns and judges the nations, all that's to come. Read ahead, last section, Lord willing, next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, even in the midst of these warnings of judgment, Lord, you spoke over your people a message of hope, a message of restoration, a message of belonging to you, being yours, protected by, delivered through you, by you. And Lord, we recognize in our own lives, Father, so often we worship the work of our own hands, the things we've accomplished, the things we can do. Oh Lord, please take that away from us. And Lord, may we rejoice, may we boast only in the Lord. Father, may we grow as we learn and understand these things. Father, as we look forward to all that is ahead. Father, we do pray again this morning for our unsaved loved ones, for those you give us opportunities to minister to, that by your grace their eyes will be open, and that, Lord, they can hear this wonderful gospel of grace. Lord, we pray again this morning for Israel, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your will to be done, and we pray for your kingdom to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.